Like I said, uh, we're supposed to be in Galatians, and uh, something got on my heart this past week, and so we're going to take a little break from that. Uh, I'm going to speak about the battle for our, our minds, but specifically about fear. Who here has any struggle with fear? Just about everyone here in this room. If you think about it, fear is part of our journey from your first step as a follower of Jesus till your last. I remember when I was 17 and I, someone had shared the good news of Jesus with me and I went out for a walk that night and thought, am I going to yield my life to Jesus? I don't know what he's going to do with my life if I become his follower and I felt fear. When I invited my first friend to church and said, hey, why don't you come with me to this thing? I felt fear. When I began to make decisions to trust God in things, I felt fear. Fear is part of every step of our journey. And yet the scripture says, what? Over and over and over again, do not fear. It's the most common command in Scripture. I notice when I have felt fear that it is paralyzing. It's like I can't move forward because my mind is just controlled by this voice in the back of my head. The joy in my life begins to just dissipate because of fear. Any sense of peace that there's this God that is ordering my steps evaporates. And even love, even love, my ability to engage with people and love them well is attacked when I'm under fear. So this past week, my wife and I got to go to Costa Rica. Little picture of us there. Uh, we just celebrated 31 years of marriage. And on our anniversary, our daughter showed up from out of town. And so we didn't get to celebrate our anniversary. And then it was Valentine's Day, time for me to take my sweetie out. We didn't get to celebrate. My daughter came back and crashed again. And so we got invited to Costa Rica, which was a, just a wonderful uh, little vacation for us. And I want to show you the view from our place here. Yeah, wow. That's what we looked at every day. What was strange about this visit was that we were in the middle of this beautiful, beautiful place that almost spoke peace to us. You could walk out of the house and just look at this picturesque view and just... <sighs> and at night in Costa Rica, the stars were so bright and just lit up the sky. And it was like God communicating, I'm here. And then I walked into the house and something hit me. A voice began to speak to me, even in this picturesque place of beauty. This haunting voice came at me, you are failing. 
And so this morning, I want to speak specifically about the voice of fear. You've all heard it, haven't you? You've all heard that voice. And I know for me, what I need to hear when I hear that voice of fear, I need to hear another voice, a louder voice. I need to hear my God speak peace to me in such a way that it rises above the din and the clamor. When Jana and I arrived uh, there in Costa Rica, we were really looking forward to this celebrity moment when you get off the plane and somebody has a little sign with your name on it. We've been, I, I know it's silly, but we've been looking forward to this. We had uh, one other time where Jana had set up a vacation. She had paid with her credit card. She had done everything herself, and we got off the plane, and the sign said, John. It was very disappointing for her. And so we got off the plane. She's still a little sore. I probably should have shared that. I may be in trouble. We'll see. We got off the plane, and we were looking forward to this celebrity moment of seeing someone with the sign. And there were scads of people holding signs, and we walked past all these signs. And I began to, like, what happened? Are, are, are we trapped? Is no one coming for us? And then over the din and the clamor, I heard the voice of our driver. John, we need this morning to hear the voice of God. Speak peace to our fears. So can I just pray for you? I know that's a very long introduction. Can I pray for you? And then we'll dive in. Father God, thank you for the uh, life-changing, lie-destroying, fear-annihilating, peace-bringing, joy-inducing promise of peace and of your presence and of your plan. This morning, we pause and we ask you to speak that to us. In the middle of where we're at individually, in the middle of where we're at as a church, that you would speak peace. And we ask that in the name of our great King, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. All right, the meta narrative of all of Scripture is that there's a kingdom. In the middle of life, there is a kingdom that was coming. Verse after verse, scripture after scripture in the Old Testament painted a picture giving little clues of a coming Messiah and of a plan that would roll out oh so slowly for the salvation of the world. And then the Old Testament just ended abruptly, like reading a book without a good ending. And it's like, where is this thing going? And then Jesus showed up. And in the Gospels, we have eyewitness testimony of the things that Jesus said and did. We have the eyewitness testimony of Matthew. We have the eyewitness testimony of John. We have Luke saying, I went back and interviewed the eyewitnesses. But Mark... Where does Mark fit into that picture? There's an interesting verse that is found only in the Gospel of Mark. 
it describes a young man following Jesus there at the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus gets arrested, there's a man wearing a sheet. And as Jesus is arrested, they grab the man and the sheet comes off and the naked man runs away. And scholars think that that might be Mark, the naked man. So a little background information on who he was. So Mark was the follower of Peter. As we read the Gospel of Mark, we're actually reading Peter's words. So if you'll allow me to get my geek on a little bit, I know that some of you are not interested in history in the same way that I am, but I want us to look at a quote from Clement. But a great light of religion shone on the minds of the hearers of Peter, so that they were not satisfied with the single hearer, hearing or with the unwritten teaching of the divine proclamation, that is Peter's words, but with every kind of exhortation they besought Mark, seeing that he was Peter's follower, to leave them a written statement of the teaching given them verbally, nor did they cease until they persuaded him, and so became the cause of the scripture called the gospel according to Mark. Does that make sense to y'all? I think it's so cool that we can read events and know that it traces back to someone who actually saw this. And the first episode I want to give you must have been impressed on Peter's mind because it is found only in this gospel of Mark which is from Peter. So if you'd look with me at Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So I want you to picture this in your mind. They are on this path, and they are going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where Jesus has been many times. Every time he's gone to Jerusalem, a great argument, a great debate has taken place between the religious hypocrites and Jesus. Every time there's been tension, every time he's gone to Jerusalem, there's been an attempt to murder him. And Jesus is now going to Jerusalem, knowing that he will die on the cross for the sins of the world, and here he is, walking ahead of his disciples. His posse is behind him, following, and they're looking at the face of Jesus. They're looking at their master, their rabbi, and they're shocked at his courage. Rather than him giving into the fear that any of us would feel, Jesus is marching courageously, boldly trusting in his God. And the disciples are hanging back and they're full of fear. Do you all get this image? Do you see where I'm going with this? Because that's us following God. He, he leads us in difficult places. Now before we go on, let's just pause and let's think about the pure joy of knowing Jesus. There's a lot of good stuff about knowing Jesus, isn't there? Let's see some heads not here, right? Like that first night where I realized I was cleansed, that was pure joy. Here in a little bit, when Carrie leads worship, a lot of us in this room will experience joy over what God has done. 
This past week at Life Group, as I joined one of our communities, it was pure joy. It was a hug fest. I got hugged like eight times. Carrie came up to me, and we hugged. I don't know if you rubbed your beard against my face, or I rubbed my face against your beard, but man, it was sweet. There's a lot of pure joy in following Jesus, right? Times that are like, man, this is so sweet. Like a few weeks ago when someone, when my buddy Chris stood up and he shared his testimony of how he came to know Jesus. It was like, yes, this is what it's all about. But there's another side too to following Jesus. Here's the first big takeaway I want you to get here this morning. Sometimes God leads us right into our fears. Do you all know that that's true? That sometimes God leads us right into situations that will cause panic. That will take our breath away. That will get to the core of what's going on inside of our heart that no one else sees. Sometimes God leads us right into our fears. Like right here in this story, right? That's what Jesus is doing. Going right into their fears. And this, with Jesus and his disciples, this is not one isolated story. This is like the same story over and over and over and over and over again in the scripture. God promises Abraham a, a son. And then what? 25 years later, Abraham's like, uh, God, did I hear you right? Am I making this up? And then there's Jacob. Jacob comes out of the womb like messed up and jacked up. He's pushing his brother out of the way in the womb. I've got to succeed. Man, I relate to Jacob so much. Jacob deceives his brother Esau, robs his blind father. What kind of sad dude is that? And then what happens in the story the very guy he ripped off, Esau, his brother, is coming at him with 400 people. Accident? I don't think so. And then there's Joseph. God puts a dream in Joseph's heart. God's going to use him in great ways. What happens to Joseph? Total train wreck. He's thrown in, into a pit. He's sold by his brothers. He's carried away. He's lied about. He's enslaved. It's like, God? Why are you leading me right into my fears? You guys know the story of Gideon? Oh, yeah. God sends a messenger to say to Gideon, God is going to use, use you, almighty oh warrior. And Gideon's like, uh, you got the wrong dude. <laughs> I'm not a mighty warrior. Sometimes God looks at us different than we look at ourselves. God gives Gideon a sign, not enough. God gives Gideon a second sign, not enough. God gives Gideon a third sign, not enough. He's still captured by his fear. I love this part of the story. You might want to go read Judges 6 if you want to encounter this story yourself. Gideon shows up at the camp of his enemies just as somebody is telling a dream. Dudes, last night I had a dream, and there was a loaf of barley that rolled into our camp it is the sword of Gideon. And Gideon's like, are you serious? What, what kind of interpretation is that? 
God leads us right into our fears. And here's why. God wants to be bigger. God wants to be bigger in our lives. He knows, just like the disciples in the boat, that given the choice between walking on water and taking a risk or staying in the comfort of the boat, God knows which one we choose. And so God leads us right into our fears so that he can be bigger in our lives, so that we can have a testimony of saying, I've been through it. I've been through the hard times, but God is big. This brings us to the second thing I want us to see. Jesus leads his followers out of a comfortable place into a dangerous place. Again, it's right here in the story. In Jerusalem is danger. Every time Jesus has gone there, his life has been threatened. And yet, Jesus is leading them right into danger. Think about the experience of the disciples. They have experienced Jerusalem and they have experienced Galilee. Jerusalem, there is violence, there is the threat from the religious leaders, there is danger. Galilee is where Jesus fed the 5,000. Galilee is where they feasted on God providing bread and loaves and fish. Isn't that what we'd want? God, just do something miraculous. Give me fish and loaves, multiply that. In Galilee, nothing was asked of the disciples. They just soaked it in. But it was in Jerusalem where they experienced danger, and that is where Jesus was leading them. I know for me, I've recognized this battle between orphan and son in my own life, in my thinking. There are days where I remember I am loved by God, He delights in me. There's this great purpose to my life. God is in control. God is leading. But there are also orphan feelings and orphan thoughts. Like, I'm alone. There is no great purpose going on here. I don't feel God's power, God's presence moving in my life. It's a wrestling match between orphan and son. But cracking out of that struggle, out of that angst, what God wants for us to emerge is this John 2.0, this faith that he is here and that he is with us and that he is leading. Is this resonating with you? This is the path of God for us to step out of our fears and to get comfortable in places of danger, knowing that we are sons and daughters. He delights and he's leading. All right, so that's the first image, this image of the path, Jesus leading us out of comfort and into danger. Everyone got that image? Here's the second image. This image is found all throughout the scripture in numerous places, it's the image of a vine. 
planted right there in the middle of the world. Planted right in the middle of a world that has gone crazy and is living without God. God plants a vine that is meant to grow and to be fruitful and to multiply and to spread out and to extend and to reach further and further into the world, forming relationships and stretching out and being inclusive and inviting people that have never known the love and the forgiveness of Christ into our community, into our experience, and into our vine. I want you to look at John chapter 15 with me here. Jesus says in verse 1, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he what? prunes. Let's just pause on that. He prunes. He clips it back. He hacks it away. He prunes that it may bear what? More fruit. Next verse. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. And I got to confess, I think I have misinterpreted this verse for much of my Christian experience. For much of my Christian experience, I've looked at this vine, I've looked at myself being the vine, that I need to abide in God, like this is personal, like me and God. And that's not the image. The image is of a reaching vine, of a stretching vine, of a church planted right in the middle of a secular culture and yet engaging that culture through risk-taking through adventurous faith, extending in relationships to the world around them. It is a vine that is on mission. So I have a little prop. This is from uh, our bougainvillea bush in the back. And uh, there are thorns all over this thing. So if I, like, cut myself and bleed out, Jim, you'd be the next guy up here. So just... Here's the image. We want control, right? Clip. Pruned. We want security. God says, nope. And he prunes it. And it hurts. And we feel like chaos is going on. We want comfort. Clip. Again, no comfort. We want a life of ease for things to be easy. And the Father clips, clips, clips in order for the vine 
to grow. My experience of God's pruning of my own life and churches that I have been privileged to lead is that God is faithful to His Word if we trust Him. I just want to say that again. God is faithful to His promises if we can receive His pruning. I want you to look at this next image here. This is of the Bougainvillea bush. And I don't know if you can see this very well, but do you see how the top is just like a flat top? It used to be like this hairy monster extending everywhere, and I used to prune it myself. I would stand on the top of the ladder, stretching over the bougainvillea bush with clippers trying to clip, with my son holding on to my feet so I didn't fall. Decided I'm done with that. And this thing has been hacked way back because that's how you cause a bougainvillea bush to just flourish. You hack it way back. You prune it in order for it to grow. I know that this is true from my own experience. My most precise moment of being pruned has to do with my wife's depression, which we've talked about openly here in H2O. It was decades ago that, as a young pastor... Jana began to experience depression. And for me, this is like, this is the worst thing that could happen. This is terrible. God, where are you? I'm an orphan. I'm alone. Why do you hate me, God? What's going on? Life is so difficult. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to come alongside of her. I don't know how to be what I'm supposed to be here. And now Jana and I can look back. And we can look at what God did in our life. And he created these wonderful things in me called feelings. Some of you have experienced those. It's awesome. And I testify that I'm not the man that I once was. Because Jesus took his clippers. And he clipped and he clipped and he clipped. But the end result was life-giving fruit in my life. Look at verse 4, back to chapter 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless, unless you do something, unless you control your time, in a way that you remain vitally connected to this vine. Unless you do that, you will not be able to grow and to flourish. Is anyone else here geeky? I just got to ask. A a few of you, okay, because I'm going to drop a word on you from the 16th century. From Blaise Pascal. Anyone? Anyone love it? All right. Got some. It's amazing. This is like 400 and something years ago. And Pascal came up with this phrase, this word called divertisement. Divertisement is an activity that separates us from the seriousness of existence and fills this existence 
existence with false content. In other words, Netflix, <laughs> Pascal, over 400 years ago. It's like he's prophetic, looking ahead and saying, this community, our community, the entire world is inundated with social media in such a way that the voice of God, that voice of God that rises above the din and the clamor, I can't hear it because of my show. I watched Netflix last night, full confession, I am in church, this is not an anti-Netflix agenda, I'm just saying that there is a real battle. I want you to look at this third thing. We sometimes, we sabotage the life God wants to give us by listening to the voice of culture more than the voice of God. Amen to that? Our church is, many of us in this church are walking through this book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. I don't know that I've ever plugged a, a book before. I want to plug this book. It is so helpful. And I want to read just a little bit to you. I grew up in a church tradition where we started our days with a quiet time. At the very beginning of our days, we would set aside a chunk of time to do Jesus-y stuff. Usually there was coffee involved. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Normally we read the Bible, asked God to do some things in our lives, confessed our screw-ups, our needs, our aches. Sometimes we just sat there alone in the quiet with God and our souls. Why doesn't anyone talk about that anymore? Or when they do, why do people mock it or shrug it off as some legalistic hangover from fundamentalism? I have a secret. Don't judge me. I still practice a quiet time every day. I wouldn't miss it for the world. It's usually the best part of my day, hands down. And I'm not even a morning person. I say we bring back the quiet time and rock it like it's 1999. So here's to tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock. I kind of choked on that part. <clears throat> 7 o'clock. Coffee. The chair by the window. The window by the tree. Time to breathe. A psalm and story from the Gospels. Hearing the Father's voice. Pouring out my own. Or just sitting, resting. Maybe I'll hear a word from God that will alter my destiny. Maybe I'll just process my anger over something that's bothering me. Maybe I'll feel my mind settle like untouched water. Maybe my mind will ricochet from thought to thought and never come to rest. If so, that's fine. I'll be back same time tomorrow, starting my day in the quiet place. You? There's a third image. We've talked about the image of following Jesus down the path, leading us out of comfort into danger. We've talked about the image of a vine spreading throughout this world, being inclusive, taking risks, and yet deeply abiding 
in God so that we can grow and flourish. But there's a third image. And that's you when you're alone. Maybe it's you when you're alone in your dorm room or in your house. When there's no one around, just you and your private thoughts. And in that space of being alone, when you're alone with your thoughts, what is the voice that you hear in your head? Because if I'm honest, I have many voices in my head just to scare you a little. I have my natural voice, my own thoughts. I have the voice of God speaking peace and faith and trust. I have the voice of my wife happily in my head. And I also have the voice of the enemy speaking deception, discouragement, saying to me things that seem awfully personal because the lie that is in my head is not in the head of my wife. And the lie that is in the head of my wife is not in my head. It is very personal, the lies that we encounter. My lie is that you're going to fail. Some of you have a different lie. I'm not enough. You're alone. You're discardable. You're not important. God is disgusted with you. God is going to pull the rug out from you. And sometimes these lies, because they're interwoven with our feelings, are not even distinguishable into something concrete that we can deal with. It's just a feeling. John chapter 10, verse 10. One of our favorite verses, we as a church go back to this verse many, many times. Let us go back to it many, many more times. <laughs> the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. It is one thing theologically to believe that life is a battlefield it's another thing existentially that when these thoughts and feelings are in our minds to say, this is a battle and I will not cower in my battle. I will trust. I will not sabotage the work of God in my life. I will not fear. I don't know what image I had when I first became a Jesus follower. Maybe it was Jesus with the little lamb around his neck, and it was all cute. But when I saw this image, I see a man that realizes life is a battle and we are in a war. We see the same thing in the Apostle Paul. So turn with me real quickly to 2 Corinthians 10. I just want to touch on this very briefly. 
Though we walk in the flesh as human beings, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We are in a battle. We are in a war, but it is not a fleshly war. Verse 4, the weapons of our warfare, prayer, scripture, are not of the flesh, but have what? Divine power to destroy strongholds. Let's pause here. A stronghold is an Old Testament word. It is a lofty place on top of a hill. It's like a fortress on top of a hill. No one can get to it because the enemy has the superior position being on the hill. And it's fortified and you can't break through it. Isn't that interesting that Paul would describe the thoughts in our heads as being a stronghold? Verse 5, but we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Amen is right. We are here to fight. We are here to fight the lies that come against us. And when I read this, I don't see some theologian giving lofty intellectual advice to a church. I see some dude that's been through war. I see a dude that has been in the ranks with people that are struggling in their marriage, in their vocation, in their walk of faith. And he's recognized this is a stronghold, but I've got power to set that free in the word of God and in prayer. So that image I misled you. That image of you walking alone or being alone in your house, that's not the way it's intended. We are to live in community and to be public, to be public, to be vocal, to voice the lie that we struggle with, that we can be set free, that we can walk in the freedom that Christ purchased with his very blood. Sometimes all we're left with in our battle is a promise. Sometimes all we're left with in our battle against the lies that are in our head are words from an ancient book. Are words that were written 2,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago. But those words, written, inspired by the Holy Ghost, have power to create freedom in the very place of slavery. In the very place where I feel defeated and powerless, those words have power. What would it look like if we as a church community came together and shared the promises of God and said, we are going to fight and stand and trust right here, right here on this promise that God has given. We will not back down. We will not cower because God has spoken. We as a brotherhood, a sisterhood, Men and women together, we will stand 
on what Scripture has spoken, and we will believe that it is true. I want you to stand with me, and I want to read one promise over you as we move into worship. Isaiah chapter 43 seems kind of appropriate for where we're at. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, He who fashioned you, He who formed you in the womb, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I bled and died and purchased your life. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Father God, I thank you for the beauty of these ancient promises that are like food to nourish our souls as we walk through this battle of life. We turn our hearts now to worship you and to give thanks to you and to get excited and to remember that our God reigns, that you are king, that you would speak peace over us. As we lift up your name, God, may the fears in our hearts subside. May the worries of our souls evaporate in the presence of our God, in the power, the omnipotent power of truth. We bow our hearts before you this day as we come to worship you in the great name of Jesus.